Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. An exciting show to talk about emergency management and weather and how the two um, kind of atmospheres come together. Pardon my pun there, but how they work together, the weather community and the emergency management community work together to make sure you all, uh, either if you live in a big city or a small city, are prepared for um, severe weather winter weather, whatever the case may be. Uh, joining us tonight is a familiar face, if you've been a longtime Carolina Weather Group fan, uh, Miss Ashley Morris, Emergency Management Planner for Baltimore County in um, Baltimore, Maryland. So um, last we had Ashley on, she was in Texas, so she's moved closer to us. So um, that way, if we ever travel, we don't have to go out to Texas, we can just go up to Maryland. So Ashley, uh, welcome back to the show. And we also have with us uh, Felix Nance, who is the Emergency Manager for the sim city of Hominy, Oklahoma, just outside of Tulsa. So uh, Felix and Ashley, welcome uh, to the show. We're gonna kind of give you a, uh, Ashley, I know you've probably answered this question a long time ago, but we'll give you the opportunity to answer again. Uh, it's a, a question we always start off our shows with. How did you get hooked up into this weather community, emergency management community? Uh, what kind of hooked you into wanting to, uh, to choose this profession? So, Ashley, I'll let you start and then we'll let Felix uh, follow up. Sure. So uh, I grew up being infatuated with weather and really I got stuck in a thunderstorm when I was uh, six or seven years old and really scared. Uh, and my dad's friend who was with me because uh, we were outside uh, actually taught me how to count the seconds between the lightning and the thunder to kind of try to calm me down because I was just sitting there crying. And so uh, after that, I remember just doing that during every single New Mexico thunderstorm that came around and I, I would buy storm books and I, I was just fascinated by weather. And so originally I wanted to do meteorology and do National Weather Service forecasting. And I went to Texas Tech University with that intent. So I got a, a bachelor's in geophysics and atmospheric science and then got up into grad school. Uh, have always been very passionate about kind of the warning systems and the watch it, watches and warnings part of weather. And so I kind of stumbled upon emergency management and found out that emergency management is really the field that we're able to make evacuation decisions and do a lot of that public safety stuff, which is what really fueled a lot of my passion with weather safety earlier. And so, um, very much an emergency manager, but very much a weather enthusiast, but also have that background too, to where I can actually do uh, weather forecasting for my office and provide a little bit of SME on the weather side. I got into, well, years ago when I worked for Red Cross, first job at a high school, and uh, I was the, the, uh, an emergency services specialist. Of course, one of the things Red Cross is known for is responding to disasters. And that's how I got interested in the weather back in the days of the weather wire back when weather information came in on a teletype at something like 40 words a minute so that was back very old school stuff and it's just stuck i've stayed with it been a skywarn spotter uh just a natural progression actually from that point on questions for both of you here uh, i want to ask uh, exactly what your uh, role is like and uh, your day-to-day -day life uh, what uh, is the typical day in the life of an emergency manager so it kind of depends on your location, your position, and uh, what you're kind of designated to do. So as emergency managers, uh, we're in the art of doing disaster preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation for either a city, county, state, or the federal through FEMA. Uh, so uh, from a local emergency management perspective, I've done four years in city and county emergency management. And so ours is very localized and hyper-focused on neighborhoods, communities, and things like that. 
And so a part of my role has been a majority of my career uh, participating in writing emergency response plans, uh, creating a lot of partnerships with like public safety, police, fire, uh, EMS, dispatch, um, public works, and all the other agencies in our government who would help us respond to disaster. Uh, getting everyone in a room to do disaster scenarios, exercises, things like that. And then doing a lot of community engagement, outreach, uh, messaging, trying to get people to be aware of what our risks are and what we kind of expect of them during disaster. And then a very small amount of our time is usually doing response. Um, obviously, if we had severe weather coming into the area, uh, if we had a big impactful storm or like the past entire year where we've been responding to a pandemic or some other kind of thing, um, that's kind of what that looks like. So we kind of have a blue sky day and a great sky day where we're either doing a lot of planning and just preparations or we're actually responding, working with partners, making decisions and providing resources to the public during the incident. Very well put. It depends on the size of your community and your staff. In our in my case, I'm a one man shop, so I'm doing a little bit of all of it. I'm kind of a generalist. And so it tends to keep one very busy. And as Ashley said, we've been dealt with a, the pandemic situation since March the 6th of last year in my shop on a daily basis, as well as all the other st the disasters within the disaster within the disaster. It's been it's been nonstop and keeps tends to keep one busy. Unfortunately, that does tend to limit some of your your planning time. So you have to limit your planning to a lot of the special events that go on. And in a small community like ours, a special event may be something as simple, if you will, as a Christmas parade or a festival at the lake, uh, or it may be something much more, you know, much more involved. But ours are generally pretty small, but they also involve a lot of our community. So it does keep us busy. Kind of staying on the topic of, I guess, at this point, the differences between um, you know, being in a more rural area versus being in a, a bigger city. So you explained you kind of wear a lot of different hats there, Felix, and, and, you, and you're kind of a generalist. Um, when a, a disaster response or emergency response actually happens, can you kind of tell us a little bit more about how that works in, in those scenarios, um, how, how you, who you turn to and the process there? When, when you're a small community like ours, and let me, let me give you a little quick lay of the land. Osage County is the largest county in the state of Oklahoma, larger than the state of Delaware, 2,400 square miles. We have the county emergency management office that has a staff of two. We have the Osage Nation, an Indian tribe, which has a staff of two, and myself. So basically there's five of us in the county. And we kind of work together to make things happen because – we can't be everywhere all the time. So it's it's not terribly uncommon for me to go to another city to assist or to assist the county because of, of this, the lay of the land and the lack of personnel. You're dealing with mutual aid situations on a regular basis where you have multiple, the county has 57 volunteer fire departments. So you start you know, you get out on a wildfire. You're you're making you're making notes of not not necessarily just how many trucks, but where they're from. Uh, it's it's a conglomerate affair, and it works pretty well because everybody works together, and that's that's the key. So you're you're drilling, you're practicing, 
the the blue sky days are the days you make the big progress because that's that's when you make the connections. Ashley, can you talk to us a little bit about how that works out kind of in a bigger city scenario? Um, you know, when an actual disaster or emergency happens, how is that delegated? And uh, what's the response like? Yeah, so I'm lucky I have the background of both. Um, so I came out of a, a tiny place out in Texas, and then I came over and did nine months with Fairfax County before I just took this position. And so one of the biggest differences in kind of that would be your resources. So it was exactly what Felix was saying. Uh, resources, resources, resources. Um, big cities, we have usually a bigger tax base. Uh, we usually have better uh, funding, uh, better things like that. And so when you have that, your capacity to respond is a lot bigger. You don't have as many mutual aid needs or community needs. We can usually throw money or resources or whatever we need at it. And so something interesting about Fairfax was that we would have severe weather setups where in Texas, I would be a little concerned. I'd probably kind of do like a light EOC activation, or maybe I would just sit in the EOC just in case we got severe weather. And in Fairfax, you would think you would do that because you have a huge population. But because your police, your fire, and a lot of your public safety is so massive and they have so many resources, it takes a lot for them to get tapped out. So we would have those squall lines with the trees down and stuff, but it wasn't a problem for Fairfax because we have massive amounts of department uh, resources. And so that was something that I had to learn that was a lot different. Um, just having the, those resources and those needs to actually be able to respond. Ashley, you know, kind of piggybacking on that, you know, Maryland's it's a it's a pretty pretty extensive urban area. Uh, does your does your like territory go out to like Catonsville and Ellicott City, where we see that major flooding over there, or do you handle that as well? We do from a first response perspective. So we do have like regional teams uh, doing like swift water rescue, uh, things like that. And so like our fire departments, even in the state, are very well linked to where they can deploy and do that mutual aid like they need to. Uh, from OEM and from Baltimore County, so I'm kind of back in one of those smaller roles being with the county. Uh, we're just establishing our program. So it's me as a planner and then a couple of fire personnel. And so depending on what the threat is and depending on what the threat would be to my county, um, we would probably sit back and make sure that Baltimore County would be okay. And then if they needed OEM support, uh, we definitely would offer that. Um, luckily, we have a great state emergency management agency that keeps us all connected. Uh, we have EMAC, which is the emergency management um, agency compact where they send out a, a mutual aid and things like that. And so we have an ability in the state to help each other when we need to. Now enter uh, the COVID-19, right? So we're getting the next topic here obviously we're going to have to you know ask about you know the challenges right so 2020 you had a whole nother set of challenges every ems um, entity across the country had to deal with now you've got social distancing and all kinds of things that you have to deal with so um, i'll let you go first ashley on on what what your efforts are what in baltimore how you handle covid 19 how you handle disasters with that layer of, of uh, complexity yeah, so I'll speak again kind of on Fairfax County. Um, so we're a bigger jurisdiction. Uh, we have a pretty big public health and it is a county public health agency where that that's a lot different from other counties in Virginia because they actually have a state program. So we have state public health and a county. So we were able to have more county resources to throw at it. 
because it is a disease or an epidemic or a pandemic, uh, that's all going to be related to public health. So they're going to be the lead agency. Uh, as OEM, we're just offering our support. So, you know, we run logistics, uh, maybe ordering PPE, uh, maybe doing any other kind of needs. Uh, they needed a lot of testing site materials like tents, uh, tables and, and that stuff. Uh, so OEM played a really big role in setting up logistics for the EOC and actually ordering and deploying the stuff based on their needs. Uh, we would help them with planning efforts. Uh, obviously, they are the subject matter experts, though, so they would lead a lot of what the plan would look like, but we would help kind of uh, support that and offer them staff, offer them really whatever they needed. Um, it was very interesting with Fairfax because, like I said, we were very big. Um, even our OEM was 20 people. And so we had a huge capability and a huge amount of people to where we could spread people out. Uh, we had a ton of different uh, NGOs or nonprofits that would actually plug in and help us with food donations, uh, mass donations, and doing a lot of the other needs that we might have uh, for our residents. And so it, it really has been a, a all, all, all community effort from everybody um, responding to this. Um, and it's really important too, because Fairfax is 1.2 million people and so it's it's a massive county. Well, it's pretty pretty much the same as Ashley, but some of the inter some of the interesting things we had a lot of PPE coming for the schools. We've got uh, twelve school districts in those separate school districts in Osage County. Uh, we had a six county area that got together at a pod, picked up all the stuff for the the local our Osage County, brought it back to Hominy and sorted it here and then distribute it to the schools. So there's a, an awful lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that people don't see and things like that. Uh, then one of the most interesting things, we've been working with our senior citizen center here. They can they cannot have in-person meals or in-person feeding in the senior citizen center. And they've had trouble getting tray uh, disposable trays and other supplies that they need. They turned to emergency management and uh, we pull rabbits out of hats and get them the things they need to, to help feed our senior citizens, our senior citizens. So there's a lot of unusual things that small towns do that the big cities may or may not do, or the people may or may not see, or they may or, they may or might, may not be unusual for them. I mean, picking up the phone and ordering a specific item in a big town is not unusual. In a small town, it may take some doing to get certain items well it certainly uh, is not always the best uh, scenario in every single severe weather setup or whatever weather setup we may be you guys may be uh, anticipating sometimes the worst happens um, between uh, oklahoma and maryland you guys certainly see the full gamut of every type of severe weather and uh, threat you need to be prepared for short of perhaps volcanoes as a kind of geologic threat um, when you guys have to make the hard decisions, which I'm sure you certainly do, what goes into that uh, emotionally and when you just have to make that decision? Uh, how, how do you do that? Ashley, I guess we'll start with you. If we're making response decisions, it's always going to be priority based. And typically uh, we put lives as number one always. And so any kind of action that we're taking, whether or not it's even in preparedness, but even in response, uh, we're going to try to do what we can to save as many people that we can and then also stabilize. So it goes lives and then property 
and then um, economic recovery and, and economic stabilization. Uh, so it is really challenging. Uh, I think that there are some situations where, you know, you might be uh, faced with a really tough decision, like for instance, uh, a dam. Uh, you might have a dam that could break and if it breaks, it might flood 2,000 homes, or you might have to do the emergency release and it might flood a neighborhood. Uh, that's a really hard decision to make, um, but I think that we tend to kind of err on um, trying to protect as many people as possible. And usually we can kind of have that support from our community in advance. Um, but um, yes, we are faced with very difficult decisions in a lot of our incident management. Felix, I'm sure that you know just about everyone in Hominy and everyone knows you. With a, a 2,000 person town, it's a lot more personal uh, than perhaps it may be with the 1.2 million, I believe it was, in Baltimore. Um, does that sometimes weigh on you when you see disasters unfolding in your area? It absolutely does, because the chances are, if, if you don't know the people personally, your kids knew them or went to school with them. So yeah, they're not strangers by any stretch of the imagination. They're your friends and neighbors, but that's also part of the strength of the community because they are friends and neighbors and the community bands together. Uh, a lot of what we do is in, in a situation with a storm is the pre-storm, we warnings and get, get the information out. In the response phase, we, we leave that to fire EMS for the rescue part and law enforcement, but we're also out there with them. And not just the day of the event, we're out there with them for a long period of time afterwards. Uh, we had a flood in March of, or excuse me, in May of 2019 that affected 71 homes and nine businesses in our town. And I told the city manager, I said, you've signed on for the long haul. We're going to be at this as well. We're still working. We're just now starting into the mitigation phase of that. Uh, but part of it is, is you were working individually with each family. And as we were doing debris removal, I told the guys, I said, now, uh, break this stuff out with the backhoe out into the street, scoop it up and put it in the truck. I said, I want you to remember that's someone's life you're taking away in the truck. It's not debris. It's not junk. It's not trash until you get around the corner. It's their life. And they all looked at me like, never thought of it that way. I said, Yes. That's everything those people own in some cases. And it's right there in a pile in the front yard. And you're taking it away. They're starting over from zip. So it, it changes your perspective uh, and the perspective of your people. So it's important to remember that, one, when the debris's gone and the rebuilding's done, now you've got to go back to those community areas of the community and visit with those people and ascertain long-term needs, make sure that their needs are met both physically and psychologically. So there's a, there's, it's a huge, huge job and it doesn't end. Uh, you know, you'll see them in church months later and it, they're still, they're still the same people. You're still the same people. And it's still, tends to evoke the same emotions. In January of every year, in January 2021, we just um, had NOAA release the billion dollar disaster map that they come out with every year. Um, this year, I believe there was $23 billion, or 2020 had $23 billion disasters. Um, Felix, I'm going to direct this question to you. And Ashley, um, living in Texas, you've 
experienced this as well. Uh, a lot of those billion dollar disasters were severe weather events. And, and Felix, it's, it's known you're in Oklahoma, prime severe weather territory, tornado season. So my question to you and Ashley, feel free to, to jump in with, with your experience in Texas. When you're setting in your office or, or the EOC or the situation room or whatever the case may be, and that moderate or enhanced or high um, SPC outlook has been issued for your area and you're waiting for the storms to develop and then they do develop and then they're producing the severe weather. What, what's it like? Take, take people into like the situation room. What, what, is, what are those high intense weather days like? And it could be flooding or uh, Felix, um, there's fires that occur out in Oklahoma a lot. You know, you have your wildfire season. So what are those days like? Take the public into to what it's like to be in, in your office on those intense days. It, it starts off with a very relaxed atmosphere. Uh, they, they give me a hard time because they'll see me come in and my arms will be behind my head and my feet will be propped up and I'll be watching radars and chat and different, different so, social media sites. And as the storms develop and approach what we call the I-35 corridor, which if you've been to Oklahoma, you're familiar with that. That means they're coming towards us. We're watching the WFO in Norman, which is our adjacent counties to the west. But that's only 20 miles. So I'm picking their by reading chat to see what they're seeing in the storms, plus the weather forecast office in Wichita, which borders their county's border is on the north, plus what my WFO my in Tulsa is saying. So we're stirring all that together. The intensity level just starts to ramp up. Uh, the closer the storms get, the more information you get, the worse they get the intensity kind of tends to ramp up to a point uh, right now, all the, the fluorescent lighting's on and everything. As the situation gets worse, the radios kind of get turned down. The lights actually get turned down. We have a, a, a different lighting setup that we use when that happens to not have bright fluorescent lights. They're turned toned down on a dimmer and it, the, the noise level goes down the, uh, Inversely, as the intensity level goes up, the light level goes down. It's it's kind of a marked change, and it's like hard to describe. But the quieter it gets, the the higher the intensity level, and it kind of just peaks at that point. And it's one of those things where you're sitting there watching and waiting, expecting the absolute worst, and praying that. You know, this is this is one forecast you could bust, and I wouldn't mind. But you mentioned the the high levels. Uh, you know, that's kind of one of the keys. You're watching the SPC forecast days out to see what they're thinking. You're watching the local WFO stuff and their decision support page. It's it's a team effort. No one sitting there making a decision on their own without a lot of base knowledge coming into them. Yeah, and I kind of agree with that too. So uh, doing a ton of different severe weather events in Texas, but also a couple of hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Harvey activation, though we got lucky with it. And then uh, 
had some activation up here uh, for one of the storms from last year. And so really it all kind of starts with a lot of briefings and a lot of meetings and a lot of conference calls. We're really trying to talk to our partners, um, our first responders and the entire county, getting people prepared and ready, um, trying to get us all on the same page. So in the event that we actually do have to spring uh, forward on a decision, we're all there on the same page. Uh, we will open up the EOC. Um, the Emergency Operations Center is basically a giant conference room. We've got screens all over the walls. Uh, we put weather radar up on the screens. We put all the different news agencies, uh, local news, national news, all kinds of things for situational awareness. Uh, and then it's really just a waiting game, just like he said. So kind of uh, uh, staying in touch with National Weather Service through chat, um, looking at the latest uh, SPC products, also watches that come out, making sure that we're pushing that to the public because we're trying to get the public to take action on their own before the storms come in. Uh, and then also using social media to do a lot of that communication as well. And then once the storm comes, there's kind of that... Um, it's like a uncertainty of what's going on. Like you're kind of lost in the dark because you're sitting in an EOC and there's a storm hitting your entire city or county or jurisdiction. And so you're trying to assess all the weather data and you're talking to your weather partners and you're trying to talk to dispatch and your first responders out there, but you still feel blind. You can't see exactly what's happening out there. And so uh, we're kind of frantic at that point, uh, trying to just find storm reports, trying to get on social media, trying to see if we can get uh, any kind of hint of what kind of damage is going on at the surface. And then once we kind of have a better idea of that, we can start to make those decisions like damage assessment. Uh, but we had one storm that came in and uh, we were able to collect all of those uh, storm reports, but we had the media coming up from Austin. And so we had to, to peg our county PIO to get them prepared for interviews and different things like that. Uh, so there is a, quite a bit of adrenaline that comes with that. And then also somewhat of a lack of certainty of what decisions you're going to be making uh, a short amount of time right after the storms. And one of the unusual things about it, you know, we, we both talked about the physical bricks and sticks EOC. The other side of that coin is, is as you move into the response mode, uh, someone once asked, where's the EOC? wherever the emergency manager drops the tailgate of his pickup. Because in fact, the EOC may, as a sticks and bricks facility, may turn out to be the tailgate of your pickup next to the incident command post. When you have limited resources and your supervisors are working supervisors dealing with the issue, it may be more beneficial to have the event run from the field for a period of time than off-site. So it, it's a kind of an unusual type situation, and it sometimes runs headlong into the, the incident command structure and doesn't always meld well at, at points with that for a while. But it's, uh, it's one of those things we've done for years and have tended to make it work pretty well because because of the nature of the community. Emergency management, besides terrorism and pandemic wise, I want to keep this kind of weather weather um, centered. Um, what, what is the one weather scenario that you just dread seeing coming your way? One thing that scares me the worst is when SPC puts up an enhanced or high risk day and you're sitting there waiting because you know the watch is coming, and it will likely be one of the PDS types. 
Because if they have that high a confidence level, you know they're expecting the absolute worst. Uh, so, if, you know, when, when you're talking tornado, severe thunderstorms, tornadoes, that's, that's kind of, that issue always crops up. The other one that worries me are the, the ice storms. And we talked uh, before the show a little bit about the Sperry Tides Index. That's an incredibly valuable tool because a quarter of a half inch of ice on power lines can make an incredible difference. And if you know a rural area can lose power, and it may be out for, for days, uh, the, the ice storm we had in October, which was much worse to our west, uh, one small community of about 800 people, there were, the line going to town and all the lines in town, the poles in town were now, they had 900, 900 utility poles down. Jeez. Now, I don't know if you know how long it takes to set a utility pole, but if you can get four of them set in a day, you've done real well. Wow. So you can imagine what it would take to get power restored to that town. I think they were, I think they were out 32, 32 or 33 days just in town. Now, there is a whole planning process to hold food for thought. What are you going to do if you have no water for, or no electricity for 33 days? Does your power plant have a backup generator? Do, do you have plans, you know, your sewer plant? Can you keep your infrastructure working? Yeah, so mine's kind of along the same lines as that. Uh, I was going to say derecho because we've had them here in the D.C. area. Uh, we had one that was pretty bad, um, and it did that. It caused power outages for over a week. Uh, and then on top of that, we had a heat wave come in behind that. And so we had heat-related fatalities because people did not have power to cool off. And so you see those, uh, those collapsing incidents that follow. And so that's always kind of a concern. But I would say a derecho, again, with widespread outages, just like he was saying, uh, losing communications, because a lot of us are you know, really used to using social media to communicate to the public, even warning systems and cell phones. Uh, if we lost that stuff, I'm not quite sure how we would get messaging out about shelters and other things. And then on top of that, I don't think that our general public is very prepared for power outages, especially for long lasting ones. And I think that we would be very challenged with getting them the right resources and making sure that they were able to get the help that they needed, uh, because I just don't think that we're accustomed to really thinking that way. So that would be my number one. Number two is that I did some research on Baltimore County, and I've noticed that we've had several federally declared disasters that were snowstorms, either blizzards or something of that nature. And while I'm from New Mexico up in the mountains and I've seen snow, I've never seen enough snow to cause a federally declared disaster. So I'm very concerned about what that's gonna look like. And what's even worse is they're always in January and February. And so I'm sitting here looking at the, the upcoming month and, and some of the uh, winter storms hoping that I can avoid that, so. Some great information. Uh, Felix and Ashley, we certainly appreciate your time. Um, I, I think our audience will really enjoy seeing the behind the scenes of what all you all are doing uh, to keep us safe on good weather days and, and bad weather days. So um, would hate to not give you the opportunity to promote uh, any social media accounts that um, you all would like to. So um, Ashley, I'll let you go first. If there's anything you'd like to, to share or our followers would like to follow you, how can they do that? Sure. I am addicted to Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter uh, as Ashley Morris or at Miss Ashes 92. And I'm also on Twitter at Felix A. Nance. 
Very cool. Well, it's certainly been a, a great conversation. Uh, Felix, Ashley, thank you for joining us. And thank you all for who are watching tonight. We appreciate it. Uh, we will see you next time here on the Carolina Weather Group.